Well, good evening, Summit. Great to be here tonight. Glad you could be with us. If you're a guest tonight, love that you're here. Uh, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Brian said, we're kicking off a new year with a brand new teaching series, talking about what unites us as a church, what brings us together, why we're here, and what that means for you. And so uh, glad you could be here. What we're going to kind of do tonight to begin is I want to help you individually, as well as us together as a church, begin to think through this next year. Begin to really think through this next year, uh, kind of mentally prepare uh, together as we face 2013. And uh, one of the things I've realized as uh, we kind of, you know, we're about the same age, most of us in this room, uh, as we kind of reach this stage in life, typically the decisions that we're making at this stage, typically the choices that we're faced with on a day-to-day basis, uh, oftentimes have the potential to completely alter our lives. The decisions that we're making uh, pretty often have the potential to completely uh, and even drastically alter our lives. For example, some of you, you can think back on 2012. If you think back on 2012 and what that looked like for you in your life, I know some of you are really grateful that year has passed, but as you think about what happened in 2012, some of you, you made some pretty life-altering decisions. Some of you moved here to this city. You moved to Denver, uh, and some of you didn't even know a single person when you did that. Some of you, uh, you started new relationships in 2012. Some of you ended relationships in 2012. Some of you did that multiple times throughout 2012. That happened a lot. Uh, Some of you took new jobs. Some of you got married. Some of you had a kid. Some of you, I mean, all kinds of things that happened in the year 2012. Some pretty significant life-altering decisions. And and when we think about that, if you're anything like me, uh, there were probably several days in that year that you just wish, uh, you just wish you could kind of go back in time when you were about six years old, you know, and, and this, the most important decisions that you were being faced with were whether to go to with the uh, cherry snow cone or the suicide snow cone and putting like all the different flavors in them, right? You just wish that life could be that simple again when you were six years old. But the reality is when you are 26 or 36 or 46 or 56, the decisions that we're making now have the potential to completely alter the course, the direction of our lives. Here's what I know for, for some of you, 2013... It has the potential to be unlike any year. For many of you, in fact, I I really believe 2013 has the potential to be like unlike any other year of your entire life. The decisions that you will make, the, the seasons that you will go through, the events that occur, the opportunities that arise, the relationships that come and the relationships that go, 2013 has the potential for many of you to be unlike any other year of your life. For some of you, 2013 will be one of the most wonderful years of your life. It will. It'll be, it'll be absolutely wonderful. Some of you, by God's grace, you will fall in love and you will get married. Some of you will have children. You'll become parents for the very first time. Some of you will be, become parents again. Some of you will take new jobs. You'll get promotions. Some of you, uh, you know, even, even some of you here tonight, in 2013, some of you will take steps in your walk of faith and experience your relationship with God in an incredible new way. 2013, for some of you, will be unlike any year of your life. Now, 2013, for others of you, will be unlike any other year of your life, but for all of the wrong reasons. If we're just being honest tonight, 2013, for some of you, will be one of the most difficult and challenging years of your life. The decisions that you'll be required to make the relationships that will deteriorate, the marriages that will crumble, the people who you love dearly, Some of them will turn on you. Some of them will disappoint you in ways that you cannot even imagine right now. 
For some of you, your companies will downsize. Some of you, you will be faced with some of the darkest hours of your life as you watch those you love face death. 2013 has the potential to be unlike any year of your life. And with all of the unknown, with all the things that we cannot predict about what this year will look like, we know right now, the first week of January, as we look forward As we think about 2013, we know right now, the one thing that we can be certain of is that there is a lot of unknown. But as we look tonight, as we look tonight at God's word, what we're going to see him tell us is that while there is a lot of unknown right now, and as we're in the midst of trying to kind of predict all the unpredictable, and we're kind of anticipating and trying to know all the unknowns, what he's going to say to us tonight is that the most important thing that you can know for 2013. The most important thing you can know for 2013 is not about what's going to happen or what could happen, but what has already happened. The most important thing you can know is not about what will happen or could happen, but what has already happened. In fact, Paul, the writer of this passage in 1 Corinthians, what he says tonight is that the most important thing that you can know for 2013 and that we could believe as a church together is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The most important thing that you could know for 2013 and we could believe together as a church is who Jesus is and what he has done. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. That's the the game plan for the evening. Uh, We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 1. Now, I love uh, this letter, 1 Corinthians. It's a great letter. It's written by Paul to an urban church uh, just like ours filled with young people, lots of new Christians, lots of questions. And uh, to be honest, by this point in the letter, uh, the people that he's writing, lots of problems going on in their lives. They're kind of making a mess of their lives. He's trying to rein them back in, set them straight, give them some guidance. And so uh, this is what he's going to say, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me. If you have your Bibles open, chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Okay, let's stop right there. What Paul is saying is that we need a reminder. He says, I need to remind you, brothers, which means that we are naturally forgetful people. We are prone to forget, and at times, we're even prone to forget some of the most important things in life. This past week, actually, I went to go get my oil changed in my car, and uh, I pulled up to a Jiffy Lube in Cherry Creek, and, uh, and while I was there, I pulled up, I was in the parking lot, I was kind of in a hurry, you could tell that they were in a hurry, this employee comes right to my car, opens up the door, says, you can come out, leave the car running, go ahead and make your way into this sketchy lounge area, we'll take care of it, here's some paperwork to read on the way, so I'm like, alright, I get up, I get out, I'm starting making my way into that sketchy lounge area, I'm halfway there, when all of a sudden I had that feeling overcome me, that feeling of like, I feel like I'm forgetting something, what am I forgetting, I got my wallet, got my phone, it's not my keys, what could I be forgetting? And I was thinking about it, I'm you know, continuing to walk into that lounge, and all of a sudden I realized, oh yeah, my child. I forgot my child. I left my little girl, Raleigh, it was just chilling in the back seat, she was just hanging out, minding her own business, some sketchy Jiffy Loop guy gets into my car, he's getting ready to like drive away into the garage, I'm like, wait a minute, time out. So I go and I stop him, I get him, and you know, I thought about that, Paul is saying we are in desperate need of reminders, even at times the most important things in our lives. We are prone to forget, and we need to be reminded, most importantly, of who Jesus is. That's what he's going to do here in this portion. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which Brian said earlier, that's a word that just means good news. 
I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. That means this is the most important thing he could tell us. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You ready for it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It says that Jesus died. He was buried he raised again on the third day. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the good news of Jesus. That is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That is the good news for all of us. And that is the most important thing that we we could know this year. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just anticipate, I realize up front that most of you, as we're kind of thinking about 2013, we're looking at this year in advance, we're just predicting how unpredictable it can be, all of the unknowns that we already kind of are thinking about. We realize that when I say that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important thing you know, you could know, I realize up front that for a lot of us, that probably doesn't seem like the most important thing we could know. Because I realize probably many of you tonight, There are a lot of things going on in your life. There are a lot of issues that you're struggling with. There are a lot of things that you're thinking through that you don't even know where to begin right now. In fact, probably many of you came into this room tonight feeling the weight of your circumstances, feeling the weight of your circumstances and knowing that tomorrow you're going to have to continue facing them. When you go back to work, the conversations you're going to have to have with other employees, the conversations you're going to have to have with your boss, the conversations you're going to have, the emotions you're going to have to endure, all the things that you're going to have to deal with this week, you know that when you hear that the most important thing that you could know for 2013 is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you said, you know what, that sounds nice, but that really doesn't seem like the most helpful thing for me right now. I realize that. I realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ may not seem like the most helpful thing that you could hear right now. But here's what, here's what we need to realize. Here's what all of us need to realize. Whether you know, Maybe you're somebody who follows Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not really sure where you kind of stand in that entire spectrum. But here's the thing that we all need to realize. Uh, what Paul is trying to get at right here in saying that the most important thing you could know is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason why he says that is so important for us. It's so important for all of us because the reason why he says that this is the most important thing you could know is because it's also the most important thing that we need. We believe that this is the most important thing that you could know because it's also the most important thing that you need. In fact, there's a story uh, it's actually found in the Bible. It's about Jesus. I think it really illustrates this principle pretty well. It's, uh, it's found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are just accounts of Jesus' life. And, uh, and, and as the story goes, one night Jesus, uh, he's actually invited to a party. He's out, he's out, you know, out and about on, in the town. He's invited by a group of men who... Um, to be honest, we don't know a whole lot about the group of men that he was invited to go out with uh, at this party, but we do know that they have a pretty terrible reputation, okay? They have a pretty terrible reputation. They're considered pretty sketchy and shady dudes. Uh, 
you know, I think if I had to compare it, it probably would be something like the types of guys that you'd find on a Tuesday night down in Lodo getting wasted and hitting on women, okay? Tuesday night, that's what we're talking about. Those kind of sketchy dudes. And, and Jesus goes out with them one night. He goes out eating and drinking with them, uh, has a good time. Now, what happens the next day, the next day Jesus is out and about, and he is approached by another group of men. Uh, this is a different group, though. This is a second group of men. And these are very religious men. These are very you know, pious men. Uh, they're very clean cut on the outside. Uh, we later know that on the inside, these men are very uh, cold, unloving, ungodly. And, and they come up to Jesus and kind of march up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we've got a question for you. Why? Why? Why would you ever associate yourself with such a despicable group of men? Why would you ever go out eating and drinking with such a terrible group of men, men who have a terrible reputation? And the way Jesus responds to this, I, I really, I love exactly what he says in response to this because I think his response really gets to the very heart of our need. This is what he says. And in fact, you'll see it up here on the screens. This is what he says uh, once they come questioning him. Uh, he says, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, and this is very like, Jesus-like, he, he responds with a question. He says, who needs a doctor? Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? And you can just imagine in that moment when you know, a group of religious leaders come up to Jesus and ask him a question. Jesus, why are you associating with your man? And then he, he responds with this kind of uh, response. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I mean, you know, probably if that were you, you'd be like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like, I asked you a question. I didn't expect a question in response. But this is what he said. Who needs a doctor, the healthier, sick? And then he takes it a step further. And this is what he says after that. I've come for the sick, the sinners. Who needs a doctor, the healthier, the sick? I've come for the sick, the sinners. Now, to us, this response, this question and answer scheme, it probably doesn't seem uh, that interesting. It doesn't probably seem that shocking. But the reality is in that moment when Jesus said this, the, that second group, those religious leaders, they knew, they knew there was something shocking about his response because what he said, he knew, they knew was directed towards them. When Jesus said that, he was responding and referring to both groups the first group of shady guys that he went out eating and drinking with, and the second group of religious leaders. And, and the entire point of what Jesus was saying, the entire point of Jesus' response is that we are all sick. We are all sick. And the religious, religious leaders, they were startled because they couldn't believe what Jesus was saying, that he was saying that we have all caught a disease, a disease called sin. No one is immune to it. No one is able to get away from it. All of us are susceptible, and we've all caught the disease called sin. Now, here's the thing. We live in Denver, which is kind of like, a, you know, in many ways, a melting pot of all kinds of different people, different backgrounds, different lifestyles. And the reality is, I think all of us can probably agree that it doesn't take too long for many of us to be able to see the symptoms of our sickness. You know, a lot of times, it's, it's pretty easy to spot the symptoms of our sickness uh, on a daily basis. You, you, you see it pretty often, you hear it, you experience it. Many of you, you could probably walk out of your apartment or your house and, and just w start walking down the street 
It probably wouldn't be a few minutes before you're able to count on both hands the number of men and women who are strung out on drugs, who are intoxicated, who are standing on a corner with a cardboard sign, and whose lives are in shambles. That's not hard to see, is it? We see it every single day. All of us experience that pretty, obvi- pretty often. It's pretty obvious. The, the, the symptoms of their sickness is pretty apparent. The thing is, that is exactly the point of Jesus' question. That's exactly the point of Jesus' response, is that, yeah, it's obvious in certain people, but what I'm trying to tell you is that everybody is sick. I am sick, and you are sick. And the reality is, is that although your sickness may not manifest itself in, 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 a, in a drug abuse or alcohol abuse, although it may, your sickness will manifest itself in other ways in life. Maybe in the way that you date. Maybe the way that you go from guy to guy to guy to guy. Maybe in the way that you just encounter women and you're just taking advantage of women on a consistent basis. Maybe you look at women as an object for your own gratification. Maybe it's just in the way that you're able to cling to anybody who gives you just an ounce of attention. That is a sickness. That is a sickness that has manifested itself in your relationships. Maybe it's the way that uh, that sickness has infected your mind or, or your heart, your emotions, and just the need to continually perform, the need to continually be noticed and, and just to find approval by so many people, whether it's the people that you work with, whether it's the people you work out with, whether it's the people that you interact with on a continual and daily basis, whether it's the approval of your parents or, or the approval of a spouse or a friend, just the need to always perform, always do more, always achieve greater. This is a sickness that has manifested itself in your life in a way that doesn't look like uh, the addict or the, uh, the alcohol, alcoholic on a corner but it has manifested itself in your heart, in your mind, in your relationships. And here's the reality. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is trying to teach us. He's saying that in all of us, there's a sickness. There's a disease. And sometimes in life, sometimes there, there are sicknesses that you can beat. Right? You catch the common cold, you get the flu, you have a migraine, you can beat that. But then there are other times in life you, you, you just can't beat it. And when we, talk, when we talk about the disease called sin, that is a sickness that you cannot overcome on your own. You cannot overcome it on your own. And all throughout history of humankind, the survival rate has always been 0%. It always has been and it always will be. You cannot beat it by yourself. Unless you know the right doctor. Unless you know the right doctor. The gospel of Jesus is such good news because it tells us, those of us who are sick and dying, that although we are sick and dying, there is a doctor who loves us and his name is Jesus. He loves us and and he loves us uh, so much, not only that he knows the cure, but he actually is the cure. He will take our sin. He will take our sickness. The prophet Isaiah actually said, he will take our infirmities upon himself. He will die for our sins. He will then be buried and then he will raise again, showing his power over our sin, showing his power over our sickness, showing his power over death and showing his power as the one and only person who can do what we are unable to do for ourselves and that is fix our sin problem and cure our disease. 
That is why the gospel of Jesus is good news. You know, the reality is, no matter how uh, 2013 turns out for you, no matter you know, if it goes really, really well, no matter if this is one of the most challenging years of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who trusts and follows Jesus, if you're someone who knows and believes the gospel, you have the ability... Listen, you have the ability, if you're someone who knows and believes the gospel, you have the ability to look at every single circumstance, every single trial, every single season, every single breakup, every single opportunity, knowing that the most important thing in your life, the most important and the greatest need in your life has been taken care of by a God who loves you. That is the good news of Jesus, and that will change you. That will change you. That will change every single thing about you. In fact, that's exactly what uh, Paul continues to write to the church in Corinth. Uh, that's how he continues saying that when you hear the gospel, when it is proclaimed, it will absolutely change you. Look with me uh, in verse 5. We're going to see what happens as the gospel is continually proclaimed. Verse 5, this is after Jesus has died, has, has been buried, raises again. Verse 5 says, And then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Those are the twelve disciples. Verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What he's saying there is that Christ appeared to 500 people after he rose from the grave. And, and if you want, you can actually go see. Some of them have died. Most of them are still alive. Go find them. Talk to them. Ask them, Did you really see Jesus? Like, really? Did you really see Jesus? And they'll tell you. Oh, yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I saw him. My brother saw him. My friend Hank, he saw him. We all saw him. We had breakfast together. He told us some stories. We had a great time. He taught us some more stuff. We all saw Jesus. There were about 500 of us there. There were about 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then, verse 7, then he appeared to James. James is Jesus' brother. Now, tell me, how many of you do you think you can convince your brother to worship you as Lord, God, creator, and king. Right? None of you probably, right? Brothers, what do they do? They give you wedgies and swirlies. They don't bow down and worship you as king. That's what Jesus' brothers did. They worshiped him. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, meaning Paul. Jesus dies. He's buried. He's raised from the grave. And then he appears to one person. Then he appears to two people. And then he appears to 12 people. And then to 500 people. And then what happens? What happens when a Jewish man claiming to be God and and claiming to have the power to forgive our sins dies and raises again to life? What happens in that moment? What happened was one of the most significant movements in human history, a movement of people whose lives have been radically and completely altered. Thousands, literally thousands of first century men and women. Men and women from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different social classes, all being radically transformed by this news of of Jesus, by this good news of the gospel. 
thousands of them overnight. They're literally, their worldviews are radically altered. Their lives are radically changed. Uh, the reason why they're waking up in the morning and what the purpose of their life has instantly overnight been changed when they hear the good news of Jesus. Literally, Greeks, Romans, Jews, the poor, the wealthy, uh, uh, slaves, politicians, all these people united together because they've heard the gospel of Jesus and they can't help but to respond to it. Thousands upon thousands, literally, this news begins spreading and uniting together people who have nothing in common, literally nothing in common. They're being united together in Asia and then to Africa, eventually to America. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women believing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their souls, the redemption of their lives. They're united together. You know, the amazing thing about that is that really it's continually evident even today. It's evident. I mean, it, it, even right now, I mean, the fact that if I were to look out, you, know, you can kind of look out right now in the room, the people that are gathered here, about 100, 130 people sitting in this room right now, the reality is, I mean, what other thing in life unites people like this all in one place? I realize on the surface, when you kind of look at our crowd here, when you look at the people in our church, on the surface, a lot of us kind of look alike. We look similar, same life stage, tend to be uh, pretty similar looking. But the reality is if you were to get to know the people in this room, you'd realize we're very different, right? Or we're very, very, some of you are very, very different from one another, okay? I know a lot of you here. I know you're different. And you think I'm different, I think you're different, and, but the reality is that's kind of the case right now if you were to compare people in our church. In fact, when I think about that, when I think uh, how, how could we ever unite all kinds of different people like here, even to the point that we literally consider one another family and consider brothers and sisters? How does that happen? You know, when I think about this often, I, I tend to, I kind of visualize a couple of different people uh, within our church and, uh, and I just kind of laugh because it seems so crazy that it's actually true. Uh, and so I just want to share that a little bit. There's a couple of stories, a couple of people that come to mind when I think about that. Um, the first person that comes to mind, I don't think he's here tonight, so he won't be able to defend himself. Uh, the first person is Jeb. Some of you know Jeb. Uh, Jeb is a mathematician and a professor at uh, CSU. And, uh, and he is a, uh, he's got a PhD in applied mathematics. I actually even wrote down what he uh, does. He, his concentration is, listen to this, check this out. Ma- think, mathematician. His concentration, reformulating finite difference methods into finite element methods in order to perform error analyses for differential equation simulations. You got, does everyone got that? You got, I'm going to read it again, okay? He re- reformulates finite difference methods into finite element methods in order to perform error analyses for differential equation simulations. That's what Jeb does for a living. So unless you have a minor in math, he can't even explain to you what he does, okay? So that's Jeb on one hand. Then on the other hand, uh, you've got Chris Wooten, who uh, by day is a software engineer, by night is a video gamer and salsa dancer with his wife, Jen. Okay, that's Chris Wooten. Uh, on the other side, you've got uh, Jessica and Jason Gamble. Okay, you've got the Gambles. They love hiking, climbing, running, camping, everything outdoors. They're also parents, the two boys, Ephraim and Shepard. Okay, and then also you've got uh, the Tubbs, Ruthie and Brett Tubbs, who Brett kind of grew up in rock bands, building race cars. He rides a Harley. Ruthie's very artistic, plays the cello. Now tell me, what on earth 
unites a group of people like that together in one building and, and declaring one another to be family. What does that? What, what brings together a mathematician and a stay-at-home mom, a rock climber and a salsa dancer? You know, even if you think about the leadership of our church here, on one hand, you've got Brian, uh, who is a sports enthusiast, and you've got Turney, who created that video, incredible graphic artist, and then you've got me. I, I hardly know the difference between a first down and a touchdown, and I could hardly draw a stick figure, but what unites all of us together? How are we able to work together, lead together, worship together? It is Jesus. It is the gospel of Jesus. That is the one thing that can unite our families, can unite our church, can unite our members so that we can come together in one place and worship Jesus Christ as King and Savior because we don't have a lot of things in common, but we have the most important thing in common, and that is that our lives have been changed by Jesus. That is the most important thing we could ever know. Paul starts off this letter in chapter 15 saying, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you stand in a legacy of men and women who for 2,000 years have been united by the gospel, for the gospel, and have given their lives to the gospel. Men and women who have declared Jesus to be king and have given their lives to that very cause. And when they do that, churches are started that preach the gospel. And they start more churches who preach the gospel, which start more churches that preach the gospel till we can stand here at a point. The Summit Church stands in a legacy of the gospel for 2,000 years and we will do everything in our power to continue that movement forward. You see, for us, the gospel is not just the starting point to the Christian life. It's not. It's not just the starting point to the Christian life. It's easy to think about the gospel like that. You know, if you believe this, then you're on the team. And that's true. We believe that. The gospel is what saves us. It is the power of God unto our salvation. If you've never made that decision, if you've never taken that step, if you'd like to learn more about that, we would love to do that. But it doesn't stop there. The gospel does not stop there. It continues. It continues to radically transform every part of our lives, our minds, our hearts, and our ministry as we continue to love and know and understand the gospel more and more deeply every single day. So practically, for the Summit Church uh, here in 2013, the most important thing that we could believe together as a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important thing that we could do as a church in 2013 is to let the, the gospel continue to change and, and, and move and drive every single thing that we do. That is why we are here. That is why we exist in the city of Denver, to let the gospel continue to change and move and drive every single thing we do. So just very simply, on a Sunday night, for example, when you come here to the summit, um, you pull up. You park your car out on the street, uh, and the first thing that you encounter is an entire team of people who are eager and excited to meet you, to greet you, to welcome you to our church, to get to know you, to bring you in inside, get a drink, find a comfortable seat. We have an entire group of people dedicated to doing that. Week in, week out, even on the freezing cold nights when it was like negative 12 degrees, we had people doing that. Why do people do that? Why every week do we have people that do that? Because those people realize 
that Jesus has been incredibly kind and gracious and sacrificial and selfless to them. And because of that, because Jesus has been so kind to them, they are eager to do that for others. Because Jesus has served them, they are eager to serve others. And that's why they do that every single week, week in and week out. And then we come inside and you get a drink and you find a seat and we gather for a little bit. And then we sing, like we just did a little while ago and we're getting ready to do in just a few more minutes. We sing, not just songs that sound cool or songs that we think are fun, but songs that proclaim and teach the gospel. Songs whose lyrics are are right from the scriptures and teach us to learn and to love the gospel even more. Some of you may even remember uh, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, uh, we, sh- we baptized Evan right up here on stage. We brought up the horse trough. We baptized Evan. Uh, he became a new Christian, and he shared his, uh, his story on a video. It's probably one of the fav- my favorite stories that I've heard so far in the life of the Summit Church because his story, uh, the way it happened, you probably remember, he shared. He said, you know what? I, uh, I've been coming to the Summit now for a long time, and it started because I met some of my neighbors I met a few girls, Katie, Gale, and Stu, who are members at the Summit Church, and they started talking to me about Jesus, and they started inviting me to the Summit Church, so I decided to come. And after a few weeks, I met DB, one of, uh, one of their friends, and I joined a softball league with DB. We started playing softball together, and he started telling me about Jesus and inviting me to the Summit Church, so I started coming. And I did, and I, and I came, and week in, week out, I, I came, I heard the sermons, I heard about the gospel, but here's what happened. What finally pushed me over the edge, this is what Evan said in his video, what finally compelled me to believe the gospel in the end was a song. It was a song. And not just a song, but a single verse. A single verse that finally compelled me that I want to believe and I want to belong to Jesus. It was a song that Deborah was singing. It was the second verse of I Stand Amazed in the Presence. And he said, that verse, it says, he took my sins and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. Those are lyrics that preach the gospel. Those are lyrics that literally change lives. That's why we sing songs that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because those songs even can change people's lives. And then we teach the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, verse by verse, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we believe that every single part of the Bible is all about Jesus and him coming to save his people from sin, deliver them from death, and rescue them from hell into a kingdom that they can live forever with him. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It changes every single thing. For 2012, some of you, some of you had extraordinary years, extraordinary year in 2012. Your lives were radically changed. I mean, dozens of you sitting here right now, dozens of you made decisions in 2012 that radically changed your life. You became Christians, you got baptized, you joined our church, and your life have never looked the same. And I'm here to, I'm just standing here tonight to tell you, 2013 can be even better 2013 has the potential to be unlike any other year of your life because the gospel continues to change every single thing. If we remember that, if we know that, if we apply that, if we believe that, I promise 2013, the stories that you tell, the way our church grows, and just the the good news that we'll be able to share will be completely incredibly inspiring to the rest 
of our city. That is our hope for you. That is the hope for our church. That is our hope for 2013. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks right now. We pray. Heavenly Fathers, we just begin another year. Lord, we pray that this will not be just another year. Lord, as we can just consider your desire to do great works in each of our lives, as we consider your desire to work in our lives in radical ways, Lord, I just pray that we will not hinder that, we will not prevent that, we will not take steps in order to see that happen, but Father, we will just do anything and everything so that we can see you work in our lives. Lord, I pray that 2013 is a year that is unlike any other year, but for all of the right reasons. So that we will know you, that we will be changed by you, that we will live for you, and that a movement of your people will continue in this city. Lord Jesus, we know that that will happen. We know that you are eager to do that. And I pray for every single man and woman here tonight that you will just continue to open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we will rejoice in that and we'll celebrate it every day day. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.